on water reside in the realm of mythology. What you are is a follower of Eusebius. in the gospel. A reading from the Talmud, from the tractate Berachot, from the turn of the third century A.D. Papos ben Yehuda came and found Rabbi Akiva studying the Torah. Papos said to him, Akiva, aren't you afraid of the empire? Rabbi Akiva said, I'll tell you a parable. A fox was walking along a river bank and saw a fish fleeing from place to place. The fox said to the fish, What are you fleeing from? The fish said, I'm fleeing from the nets that people cast. The fox said, Why don't you come up on dry land and we can live together just as our ancestors did? The fish said, Are you really the one they call the cleverest of animals? You're not clever, you're a fool. If I'm afraid in the water, my natural habitat, which gives me life, then in a habitat that causes my death, all the more so. The moral is that we Jews now sit and study the Torah, about which it's written, that is your life, that is the length of your days. And because its abandonment is the habitat that causes our death, all the more so will we fear the empire. Now, not a few days passed until they seized Rabbi Akiva and put him in prison on the charge of studying the Torah. When they took him out to be executed, he was reciting Shema. His students said to him, Teacher, even now, as you suffer, you recite Shema? He said, All my days I've been troubled by the passage that says, Love the Lord God with all your soul. I said to myself, When will I ever get the opportunity to fulfill this verse? Now that I have the opportunity, shall I not fulfill it? Then a divine voice emerged and said, Happy are you, Rabbi Akiva, because you are destined for life in the world to come. That was a reading from the tractate Berachot from the Mishnah, and it has to do with Jewish martyrdom in the second century. In doing this show, Jewish literature has saved my ass on more occasions than I care to count. It's like the Army Air Force coming in at the end of Saving Private Ryan. Whenever I think that I'm being too speculative on Christian origins, whenever I feel like I don't have enough evidence or precedence for a claim that I'm making, I can almost always find it in Jewish texts. There are so many Jewish antecedents for the Christian beliefs that indeed little, if any, room is left for any Christian innovations. What we often consider Christian innovation seems to have actually been developed in response to perceived rejection that is push factors emanating from early rabbinic Judaism. Now, before we talk about the glory of martyrdom, where we find yet another Jewish precedent for Christian beliefs, I want to address one major example of something that's usually said to be a Christian innovation. That is, the idea that no Jew prior to Christianity ever conceived of a suffering Messiah. In fact, Bart Ehrman, in his book, Did Jesus Exist?, presents this as one of his two principal arguments for the existence of a historical Jesus. By the way, if you didn't know, in that book, Bart Ehrman's answer is, yes, Jesus existed. 
And that book is part of the general trend today, the modern strategy of pretending that the historical Jesus was almost incidental to the development of early Christianity, which we have to apparently imagine as a fluke belief system that was created solely by the immediate followers of Jesus in their speculations in the aftermath of his death. It's almost extreme minimalism where Jesus himself is diminished down to the vanishing point. It's like, why would you even need a historical Jesus at that point? But Bart Ehrman and many others say that before Christianity, there was no concept of a crucified Messiah, a suffering Messiah. By the way, they use crucified and suffering interchangeably because by saying crucified, they leave themselves with an escape hatch in which they can safely default to Paul's arguments about what it says in Deuteronomy 21 to the effect that everyone who hangs on a tree is cursed. But that's really just a red herring. What we're all talking about here is why Jesus didn't match the traditional view of the Jewish Messiah, which was that he would be, at a minimum, a sort of ever-victorious figure, no matter what specific guise and role he appeared in. Now, you remember in episode one where I discussed the body slam challenge, and that's where I said that whenever theologians get to the part in their books where they try to give us their reconstruction of the day one origins of Christianity, they're notably unable to do so no matter how learned and detailed the rest of the book is. Well, here's a treat. It's Bart Ehrman himself doing the body slam challenge. He's going to tell us exactly how the man Jesus, who suffered a shameful death, came to be seen by his followers as the Messiah, and thereby he's going to essentially tell us how Christianity got started. So this is some real shit we're getting. Did Jesus exist? Quote, There really was a man Jesus... Some of the things he said and possibly did made some of his followers wonder if he could be the Messiah. Eventually, they became convinced he must be the Messiah. But then he ran afoul of the authorities, who had him arrested, put on trial, and condemned to execution. He was crucified. This, of course, radically disconfirmed everything his followers had thought and hoped, since he obviously was the furthest thing from the Messiah. But then something else happened. Some of them began to say that God had intervened and brought him back from the dead. The story caught on, and some, or all, we don't know, of his closest followers came to think that in fact he had been raised. This reconfirmed in a big way the hopes that had been so severely dashed by his crucifixion. For his reinspirited followers Jesus truly is the one favored by God, so he is the Messiah. But he's a different kind of Messiah than anyone expected. God had a different plan from the beginning. He planned to save Israel, not by a powerful royal Messiah, but by a crucified Messiah. Yeah, I gathered you. End quote. This is what I mean by the body slam challenge. A whole book about the historical Jesus with a lot of information, but... This was the precise moment where he had to go for the slam, and he missed. I mean, anytime someone uses words like disconfirm, reconfirm, and re-inspirited, you know you're reading something that went through at least three or four rewrites. In fact, it sounds like he brought in a lawyer to write this part of the book. I don't mean to slam him as such, but the book is very unfriendly to people with alternative views. So, But this is his explanation about how Christians were the first to believe in a suffering Messiah. Essentially, they just did. Possibly some things Jesus did eventually convinced them. Then something else happened. 
they got re-inspirited and they realized that God's real plan was to give them a crucified Messiah and they were in a unique position to confirm or disconfirm those suspicions. And as you can see, it's nothing more than a cliff's notes of the New Testament. The speculation itself, some of them began to believe that he was favored by God. That appears to be based largely on an exegesis of Peter's speeches in the early parts of Acts, which step one should be to demonstrate who wrote Acts and when. And also, was Christianity the only Jewish movement that had disappointed followers? Like none of the disciples of any of those previous prophets or rebels ever thought to say like, well, hey, maybe God's plan was for our leader to die and he'll come back someday and then that'll be the real rebellion. You know, you ought not to be misled by a theologian stating that they're agnostic or even atheist. That refers to their personal private beliefs, and that is quite a different matter than their views and opinions of Christian origins. Like I said in episode eight, the theologians, regardless of their personal beliefs, seek to preserve some element of the miraculous and wonderful within Christianity, and we can speculate as to why. But to me, this is a Jewish sect within a family of similar sects whose antecedents can be traced to the first century BC, and what we see as Christianity is really a hybrid of a few of those sects that did the long march and basically outlasted and or suppressed the others. That's about as miraculous and wonderful as I'm willing to get. Also, see every other religion ever for further examples of that. But anyway, here's one piece of evidence I can offer that the idea of a suffering Messiah predated Christianity. It's the Gospel of Mark. Jesus says at Mark 9.12, quote, Elijah does indeed come first and restore all things. But how is it written of the Son of Man that he will suffer many things and be treated with contempt? Mark 14.21 The Son of Man is to go just as it's been written of him. Now the word written implies the existence of a book where these beliefs in a suffering Son of Man were presumably outlined. Son of man, in this context, clearly refers to the Messiah, Elijah spoken of as his forerunner. I got into a discussion about this the other day with some more open-minded Christians, and they were saying that, well, for this, he's probably citing some lost source that had to do with Elijah. Robert and Price also said something along those lines, but I don't think so. It, It seems clear that Jesus is bringing up the Suffering Son of Man book as a kind of counterpoint Like, yeah, we all believe as Jews that Elijah will come, but at the same time, don't forget about what it says in this book, the Messiah needs to suffer as well. And I should clarify that no one knows what book or what written prophecy Jesus was referring to there when he said it is written, you know, it's one of those New Testament problems. I think many theologians would suggest that Jesus was referring to Isaiah chapter 53 there, but if that's the case, then Jesus was really outdoing himself in terms of being cryptic, whereas you get the sense from how often he repeats this statement in Mark that the author deliberately wanted it to be understood. Now, Bart Ehrman believes that these sayings of Jesus here come from later Christian tradition and weren't uttered by the historical Jesus, but even still, it has to be remembered that One of Mark's key objectives in writing his gospel is to spell out in clear terms that Jesus himself fulfilled this prophecy because he makes four references to it, and none of them appear to come from Mark's source materials, which are some of the Q sayings and the miracle worker pericopes and a passion source. 
the concept of a suffering Messiah or divergent traditions about the Messiah, Samaritan responses to the Jewish traditions about the Messiah and the Son of David, all these necessarily require their own episode. But all this to say, if we don't always find a Jewish antecedent for a Christian concept, we can usually find at least a suggestion of one, such as here in Mark, where there seems to have been a written prophecy or lost apocalypse about the coming of the Son of Man, which involved his ignominious death before he returned with power. And from the writings of the early church, we know that there was a smorgasbord of prophecy books that were used by those early Christians, many of which we no longer possess. So let's not be too quick to discount the possibility that where the Christians appear to be innovating, that they might not in fact be borrowing and appropriating or simply following one strain of the variegated Jewish beliefs of the second century. In point of fact, Christianity began its life as one Jewish sect among many, one strain of a Jewish heresy that happened to survive. Now, I apologize for that digression, but like ancient authors such as Josephus, I tend to put my digressions in the body of my remarks. But another example of a Jewish antecedent for Christian behavior was found here in our reading on the glorification of martyrdom. Precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his godly ones, the psalmist thunders forth in Psalm 116. Psalm 44, For your sake we're being put to death all day long. We were considered as sheep to be slaughtered. Martyrdom in Judaism is part of what's called Kiddush Hashem, sanctification of the name. The name is, of course, the name of God. And remember from our last show, what were the early Christians claiming? They were being punished for something called the name. And we're trained to read that as the name of Christian, but it's really the name of Christ or the name of God. That is the name for which they glory in confessing. That is the name for which they claim to be dying. That is the name for which they claim to be hated. In the tale about Rabbi Akiva, we are given the picture of the idolatrous pagan empire, which threatens the most important duty that can be performed by any Jew, which is engaging in the study of Torah. When the empire prevents us from studying Torah, it's like taking a fish out of water. We can't live without it. And thus we're presented with a binary choice to transgress and desecrate the name of God or to glorify it by our death. God says in Ezekiel, I acted for the sake of my name, so that it wouldn't be defiled in the sight of the nations. I will not allow my holy name to be profaned anymore. Again in the Psalms, Not to us, Lord, not to us, but to your name give glory. The Talmud says of the Jewish martyrs in the Bar Kokhba war that they glorified the name of God by their death. And we see this concept of the name come full circle in Christianity in the prophecy book called The Shepherd of Hermas from the mid-2nd century which describes the Christian church as the tower founded on the word of the almighty and glorious name. And in Judaism, as in the Christianity that emerged from it, if someone is faced with a choice of death or apostasy, death is preferred for the sake of the sanctification of God's name. Tertullian, who happens to be the early Christian writer who yammers the most about persecution, also makes this connection as well over and over again. Discussing the Acts of the Apostles, he says, Paul's disciples at last say, Let the will of the Lord be done. What was that will? No doubt that he should suffer for the name of the Lord, not that he should be bought off. 
For as Christ laid down his life for us, so too should we do for him. As with Rabbi Akiva in the reading, Tertullian also expects that the martyrs will receive a reward. He says, When the flame of persecution is consuming us, the steadfastness of our faith is proved. The sword, the fire, the cross, the wild beast, the torture, these are nothing but trifling sufferings to obtain a celestial glory and divine reward. Die the martyr's death, that he may be glorified who has suffered for you. By the way, just as an aside, in another passage, he encourages the martyrs by citing some past examples of laying down one's life for a cause. And I regret to inform you that out of Christian examples, he only cites three, and they're all New Testament figures, Stephen, Onesimus, and Aquila. He actually cites far more pagan examples, Heraclitus, Lucretia, Dido, Empedocles, Musius Scaevola, who actually did not die, Cleopatra, Proteus Peregrinus, a pagan who was almost a near contemporary. It's almost as if there weren't any famous recent Christian examples for him to draw from. Like what, like no Polycarp, no Ignatius? They would have fit perfectly here. I guess that's neither here nor there. But he also wrote an entire book in which he argues that the specific reason that martyrdom is legitimate is that it is the most emphatic statement that anyone can make against idolatry which is an argument that would actually be more at home in a fully Jewish writing. And it shows just how much Christianity owed to its mother religion when it comes especially to this idea of glorious martyrdom. But how does this tie into Pliny's letter about Christians that we're examining in this series? Well, I've been talking about the Pliny letter being a forgery, but a potential objection to that has always been that the letter ends with Christianity still being illegal. Christians are still to be punished for their faith, as Trajan says in his response. Now, why would a forger want to leave that state of affairs in place? Well, first and foremost, never forget that if this letter was being forged in the late 2nd century, as I maintain, the forger cannot very well write something about Trajan outlawing the persecution of Christians, since the forger and his audience know full well that the persecution of Christians is not illegal in their own time, nor to their knowledge has it ever been, so the forgery would be dead before it even got off the ground. But more importantly, and as I commented briefly in the last episode, the forger would not want to have the emperor declare that the persecution of Christians is entirely off limits because from the perspective of the mainstream Christian clergy, of which the forger is likely a member, they don't want the workaday Christians to perceive that the road to martyrdom is closed off to them personally, even if they themselves never have an opportunity or even a desire to take it. Rabbi Akiva in the reading expressed the same concern. He was stressed throughout his life that he would never be able to serve God in this way. He recognizes that it's one of the highest duties that a believer in Yahweh can be called upon to perform. And this zeal for martyrdom is a fundamental element of Christian belief that was inherited from Judaism, where it was associated with glorifying and sanctifying the name. And always keep in mind throughout this Pliny series that the persecution of Christians by the Romans is really only just beginning in the forger's time, and it's beginning in fits and starts, and only slowly taking the eventual shape that it would by the mid-third century in the time of Cyprian. Here in the late 2nd century, at the time the Pliny letter was forged, we're still in the midst of tropo-rama when we read these Christian texts about persecution. 
We have no idea whether the forger of Pliny's letter was even responding to something that he knew firsthand to be a specific problem. He could just as well have been influenced and been upset by the horror stories of Athenagoras and Justin that we saw to be mostly embellished. Because one of the things that's so striking about early Christianity is that there seems to be hardly any lived experience behind the writings that we possess. It's all literature responding to other literature. We're reminded of the statement by the mythicist Paul-Louis Couchoud, who said that the early Christians were more of a band of readers than adherents of a sect. And lastly, another reason why martyrdom was so important to these early Christians, something we haven't really touched on yet in this series, it came to be viewed by them as a point of pride that distinguished them from heretics. And speaking of Bart Ehrman, in his book, Lost Christianities, he identified the willingness to die for the faith as a key element of what he calls the proto-Orthodox religion, that is the early Catholic faith, and what I call on this show, mainstream Christianity. In fact, he says it was one of the hallmarks of their religion, and he calls it a boundary marker that separated true believers from heretics. The mainstream church, this proto-Orthodox religion that he talks about, was closer to Judaism than most of the other sects, certainly far closer than was the religion of Paul. And they inherited this concept of glorifying martyrdom from Judaism. And its own antecedents within Judaism go all the way back to the early Hellenistic period. But a Christian clerical forger of the late 100s AD would be very careful not to create a situation in his letter where the possibility for martyrdom was closed off, as I said. Again, the illegality of Christianity as such is something that's assumed by the forger, and he expects that it will also be assumed by the reader. This is another example of a situation where the statements in the letter are not being dictated by historical fact or the administrative needs of Pliny in governing his province, but more so by the fundamental assumptions of the Christian worldview of the time. All this to say, there are important reasons, cultural and doctrinal reasons, for a forger to have Pliny and Trajan limiting the persecution of Christians while stopping short of banning persecution as such. You're listening to Born in the Second Century, and it's now August 10th, 2021. This is episode 12 of the ongoing effort to investigate Christianity's late origins, hosted by Chris Palmero. The music for today's broadcast was provided by the recording group Pompey Gray. Some quick hits having to do with the last show. I maintain that the passages about Tacitus and Suetonius having to do with Christians were forged by Christians, and the question that's always been raised is, if Christians were willing to insert these passages into the books of the secular historians, why would they forge a hostile witness, seeing as they could have inserted anything? Might as well insert something more favorable to Christianity. Well, writers like Tacitus, their books, especially in late antiquity in the Middle Ages, would have circulated mainly among a select few who knew somewhat about those authors and the kind of things they would have written had they occasion to mention Christianity. And a forger would have known that the reading public of Tacitus at the time would not be so stupid as not to recognize that a glowing testimonial about Christianity from his pen would not be immediately suspect. And also, to the Catholic Church of that period, a hostile ancient witness was paradoxically better than no ancient witness. 
Because part of the reason that these church historians and their sacred histories and chronicles take time to point out the pagan testimonies to the earliest beginnings of Christianity was to demonstrate the antiquity of what could be called an orthodox form of the faith. And these forgers had the same interest because at any given time in the first few centuries, for every variation of Christianity that you're seeing, there's at least three to four dozen other variations that you're not seeing. And these deviant strains of Christianity, more often than not, would take advantage of the sparsity of information about the church in those early periods, which we've commented on many times and claim that, well, the real traditions of Christianity actually come from obscure early church figures like Andrew or Nicholas or Matthias. And more often than not, the teachings that were claimed to have been received from those figures strikingly differed from those promulgated by the mainstream. Well, if you notice in the Tacitus passage, he takes time for some reason to carefully state that Christ was crucified during the reign of Tiberius by the procurator Pontius Pilate. And what does it say in the Nicene Creed? But for our sake, Jesus was crucified in the days of Pontius Pilate. Have you ever wondered why the Nicene Creed and the earlier apostolic creeds that it was based on that go back to the late second century, why would they take time to mention who killed Jesus? It's kind of pointless unless the implication is that we ought to somehow be worshiping Pilate. Well, this issue happened to be a sticking point in the early church. Not everyone believed it. In fact, for that reason, it was also part of the baptismal formula and the exorcism formula. That's how adamant the clerics were that you needed to repeat over and over the fact that Jesus was killed under Pilate. And here we have Tacitus doing the same thing, a hostile witness, but an early one who attests to Christians at an early date obediently submitting to martyrdom, innocent, of course, of all charges against them. And by the way, lest we forget, Christ was crucified in the 30s AD, and it was done by Pontius Pilate. It's only the best Roman historian of all time who attests to that. And of course, if you're forging a passage of Tacitus, you're not going to have him treat Christianity with kid gloves. But even still, the mere fact that in this passage, Tacitus still somehow felt the need to say something negative about the Christians is rather another suggestion of forgery, since his whole point with this passage was supposedly to highlight how Nero falsely accused these clowns. And by him tagging Christianity with the term pernicious superstition, it's a bit confusing because we're like, hey, uh, was Nero wrong in condemning them or wasn't he? I think the forger was guilty of an overcorrection there. But speaking of Tacitus and the Great Fire, I'm pleased to announce the addition of a new canonized saint to our pantheon for this show. And this will be our first ever canonization ceremony. And so after due deliberation and not having sought the counsel of any bishops, we declare and define the blessed Carlo Pascal to be a saint. And we enroll him among the saints, decreeing that he is to be venerated as such by the whole podcast. Carlo Pascal, a classical scholar of the 19th century, joins our pantheon of St. Gordon Rylands, St. Edwin Johnson, and St. Candida Moss, and he will be known henceforth as St. Carlo. He's from the 19th century, and he had an opinion on this great fire passage. Now, the usual positions on the passage are, A, it's genuine. Christians didn't start the fire, but Nero punished them for it, like it says. B, it's been altered. Christians didn't start the fire, but Nero punished some other group and a later Christian editor altered the passage. C, it's not genuine. 
Christians didn't start the fire and nothing at all happened. The whole passage is interpolated. That's my own position. But St. Carlo, however, came up with a fourth possibility. D, it's genuine, except the Christians actually did start the fire. And therefore, Nero was right to punish them. And St. Carlo was brutally attacked by the Christian theologians of the time in a way that I can barely describe. They were like, they were about as angry as Jeffrey Lebowski screaming at the dude in the back of that car about how the plane has crashed into the mountain. But in any case, that is fucking awesome. And in fact, from now on, outside of this show, that will be my official position for trolling purposes. The Tacitus passage is genuine. And Christians did exist in the 60s AD, but were absolutely guilty of the crimes that Nero accused them of. Today, we continue our investigation of the so-called Pliny letter. That is the letter from Pliny the Younger to the Emperor Trajan, allegedly from the year 112 AD, asking advice on the legal procedures to be conducted against Christians in the province of Bithynia. By exposing it as a forgery, I hope to demonstrate that it therefore doesn't conflict with the hypothesis of a late origin for Christianity. As we've discussed, the hypothesis here is that the Pliny letter was forged by Christian clerics of the 180s AD as a way to try to limit their exposure in the Roman legal actions against Christians, whether those actions were real, imagined, or exaggerated. More often than not, when you're dealing with Christianity, it's a mixture of imagined and exaggerated. In the last episode, I started a close reading of Pliny's letter, and we quickly found that to properly explain the circumstances of its forgery, we have to first demonstrate that it has no actual legal basis, or at least no discernible one. For the letter to make sense, Christianity would have had to have been illegal before the year 112 or 111, when it was supposedly written, if it was genuine. So we've gone back through the Christian and pagan sources to look for those precedents, and thus far we haven't found any. I mentioned last time about how theologians point to the time of the Emperor Nero as the most likely period in which anti-Christian legislation would have been passed, but when we investigated our sources, we found that they were running cold. So today we're going to move forward in history to the time of another supposed notorious persecutor, the Emperor Domitian, who ruled from 81 to 96 AD. His reign is basically the last chance for us to find a precedent that would have made Christianity illegal in Pliny's time. Because after Domitian, you have Nerva ruling for about two years, and then, of course, we have Trajan beginning in 98, and he's the very emperor that Pliny was writing to and knew fuck all about the procedures against Christians. But what we'll demonstrate today, as if I even had to tell you, is that the persecution of Christians by Domitian, as with Nero, is also a legend. As we go forward, let's always keep our key question for this series in mind— whether we feel that it's necessary to agree with the apologists and the theologians that this Pliny letter is impossible to question as they maintain that it is. When we remove the last possible piece of its legal foundation today, my hope is that we can all begin to recognize just how precarious this document really is. Back after this. show, we started the close reading. 
Pliny mentioned trials of Christians having been held before his time. And we talked about how the premise of this letter is that Christianity is already illegal by the year 112. In fact, that assumption is fundamental to its authenticity. We said that the consensus among theologians is that there had to have been a special and specific law passed against Christians before Pliny's time, which is the only way the letter would make sense. We said that the best precedent for such a law was the reign of Nero in the 50s and 60s AD. But when we delved into the sources for that period, we ended up exposing the persecution of Christians by Nero as an airy fiction. Today, we'll continue our march through Roman history to find any kind of precedent for Pliny's assumptions about Christianity. Now, I should say that a good overview of the early history of Christian persecution is a paper called Legislation Against the Christians by T.D. Barnes. When you look at the evidence all lined up side by side, the way he arranges it, you get the sense of just how lacking uh, it really is. And I mentioned this paper because to obtain it, I had to pay $12, and I'll be damned if I don't get at least $12 worth of content out of it. When we last left our Christians, they were safe and sound in their homes, their house churches, not being persecuted by Nero. Actually, in point of fact, they didn't exist at all during the time of Nero, but that's neither here nor there. The point is, the persecution by Nero is a myth. Now, with Nero's death in 68 AD, the Julio-Claudian dynasty that had been founded by Augustus finally ended. Late the next year, Vespasian, a simple man, the son of a jeweler from Reate, took over in a sort of coup and established his own short-lived dynasty, the Flavians. And it would be him, followed by his son Titus, who would rule briefly and would shortly die and be replaced by Vespasian's other son, Domitian. Now, as we saw in the last episode, Tertingulus goes out of his way to state that Vespasian didn't enforce Nero's law against Christians. You know, Nero's phantom law that we showed in the last episode was as fake as McLovin's ID. What Tertullian actually means is that his sources for the rule of Vespasian having to do with Christians were a complete blank, which is not surprising to us since we're suggesting that Christianity technically did not exist at that time. Incidentally, most people do believe that Christianity existed in the time of Vespasian. But I ask, isn't it notable that the sources about Christians during not only his reign, but the reigns of his two sons, all the way up to 96 AD, for those reigns, the reliable information that we can get about Christianity amounts to precisely Dick. To the extent that the ancient writers have anything to say about these time periods, it's all late and legendary horse manure to the extent that we get anything at all, which we barely do. Contrast that with the reign of a third century emperor like Philip the Arab, for example. We know more about what was going on with Christians during that time period, the 240s, than we probably have any right to. So nothing happened under Vespasian. And we get the express statement of Tertullian to that effect as well for what that's worth. But interestingly enough, a moron named Hilary of Poitiers, a Christian from the 300s, says in one of his books that Vespasian was a persecutor of Christians. He's most likely confusing Vespasian with his son Domitian. I mention it just as a curiosity. 
As for the Emperor Titus, there's one very late legend about his interactions with Christians, a story from Sulpicius Severus in the 5th century. It seems like what the later Christians did was list out all of the Roman emperors in order, and they noticed that there were hardly any events relating to Christianity in most of their reigns, which shouldn't surprise anyone at all who's been listening to the past 11 episodes of this show. But it seems like they then made a concerted effort to forge at least one Christian story so that the religion would more or less be constantly attested from the reign of Tiberius all the way up to their own time. It's very cute, but also transparently fraudulent. But this brings us now to the reign of the emperor Domitian, from the year 81 to the year 96. Domitian is important because he, along with Nero, is one of the two emperors that early Christians associate with persecution. And so those who have analyzed the Pliny letter and believe it to be genuine have agreed that if we're looking for a precedent for the behavior of Pliny and Trajan, who both seem to be operating with the understanding that Christianity is illegal even before they put pen to paper to write about it, that precedent would have to have come either from the reign of Nero or from the reign of Domitian. And having swept Nero's so-called persecution into the dustbin of non-history in episode 11, it's now incumbent on us to examine any and all evidence for a persecution of Christians by Domitian. But first, why don't we talk about Domitian himself? Now, the last episode was about Nero, and I feel that Nero is kind of old hat at this point, but Domitian we don't hear about as much. He gets a bad rap from the contemporary Roman historians almost immediately. Our main sources for him are Cassius Dio and Suetonius. Suetonius begins his biography of Domitian by saying that Domitian grew up poor and didn't possess a single piece of plate. Now to us, if a biography begins this way, it's usually to emphasize the virtue of the subject, like the suggestion is that their virtue alone sustained them in the period of their early life. But here, the fact that Domitian grew up poor is said by Suetonius to be infamous. Things don't get much better from there. We're told that he began his reign by spending days on end stabbing flies with a pen. He set up reflective surfaces everywhere so he could see whether anyone was coming up behind him to try to murder him. He was so lazy that he didn't like to walk anywhere. Instead, he was driven around in a little golf cart. I mean, he was carried around in a litter. On a thematically related note, his worst quality of all was that he liked to be flattered, but he was equally displeased with those who flattered him and those who didn't. The former, because they seemed to be flattering him. The latter, because they seemed to despise him. He awarded too many prizes in the games. He would regularly talk to a boy who had a really small head. In fact, sometimes they had very serious discussions. He prohibited the uniting of two legions in one camp. And I think that that may have been the inspiration for the design choice that they made in that game, Civilization V, I think it was, where you weren't allowed to stack more than one unit on the same hex, possibly a nod to Domitian's policy there. Domitian wrote a book about hair care, even though he didn't have any hair. And I mentioned in an earlier episode that ancient writers can't go more than a few paragraphs without quoting the classics. Well, in the one passage from Domitian's hair care book that has survived, he quotes the Iliad of all things. He administered justice scrupulously and conscientiously, we are told. He was an object of terror and hatred to all. 
Under him, the city officials and the governors were never more honest than just. He put someone to death for naming a weapon after himself. His savage cruelty was not only excessive, but also cunning and sudden. He renamed September and October after himself, as one does. And lastly, when talking about Domitian, Suetonius gives us what is my favorite line in any ancient book. Domitian built so many and such huge vaulted passageways and arches in the various regions of the city, adorned with chariots and triumphal emblems, that on one of them, someone wrote, that's enough. Domitian was overthrown by a conspiracy of his friends and freedmen and was assassinated on the 14th day before the calends of October, the 45th year of his age, and the 15th of his reign. Thank you for listening to the History of Rome podcast. By the way, Suetonius says that at the beginning of Domitian's rule, he paid for the renovation of various libraries and specifically paid for them to track down as many copies of lost works as they could find. If that's true, he is probably a big reason that the second century was such a golden age of forgery, you know, with all these libraries scrambling to outdo each other and collecting rare books like I talked about at the beginning of episode nine. Now, if you notice, there was positive and negative information mixed in there, and all that information came from Dio and from Suetonius, and they don't seem to notice that they're throwing out contradictory information. Now, it's really fashionable today to do these revisionist histories of Domitian that try to show that he wasn't anywhere near as bad as these ancient sources indicate. But we should be careful not to overdo it with that because as we see, the supposedly hostile sources already report quite a bit of positive information about him as well. In episode six, I said that we would cover Domitian's persecution someday and I spoke about the 90s AD, which is the time of Domitian's reign and how it's used as a dumping ground by theologians to stick certain Christian books that they would otherwise be unable to date. The reason that those books, like First Clement, for example, are placed in the 90s is because they often contain what seem like veiled references to a persecution going on, but they don't seem early enough to where it would make sense to put them in the time of Nero. And by the way, if you did try to stick them in the time of Nero, you'd also be putting them dangerously close to the New Testament books, and that's a no-no when it comes to many of them, like, for example, Barnabas, which mentions the destruction of the temple, and First Clement itself, which has a lot of language suggesting that the church has been around for a very long time at that point. It seems appropriate to the theologians to place these books in the 90s because of their supposed references to persecution, because for 1,800 years, it has been the received lore that Domitian persecuted Christians during his reign. It couldn't just be, for example, that these books are just making generic statements about the need to be steadfast, and in that they're self-consciously and poorly trying to imitate the letters of the New Testament where that same trope is frequently used. No, they have to be referencing a specific persecution because the second we all start admitting that these authors are just using shop-worn tropes, then we might as well close 75% of the churches and certainly close down at least 90% of the biblical studies departments. So we have to pretend that these letters are referring to a specific persecution. Again, it can't be Nero's because that's too early, not to mention fake. So where else can they stick these letters? Well, thank God. It turns out that Domitian persecuted Christians in the 90s. And so they wave in the garbage truck and let it back up and dump all these undateable Christian texts into the 90s AD landfill. As a side note, most other religious groups, if they learned that their ancestors had been persecuted in the past, their reaction wouldn't usually be one of gratitude. But in this case, modern apologists and theologians are so thankful that the ancient Christians were getting hosed in the 90s AD, they're actually grateful for that because as we see, 
It allows them to stick a lot of their bullshit texts in the first century. Now, by way of contrast, in the 1800s, you can read theologians saying things like, I can never read the martyrdom of Blandina without shedding a tear. Not modern theologians. They are gleeful about these things because it helps their agenda of assembling a constellation of early witnesses to Christianity and also justifying and explaining some of the weirder passages in their texts. In the last episode, we looked at two quotes from the late second century, one from Tertullian, one from Melito of Sardis. Both of them said that Domitian had persecuted Christians. They didn't give any specific details, though. I maintained that Melito's testimony on this was a forgery, but Tertullian did give one extra detail, which may give us a clue as to where he got his information about Domitian's actions against Christians. He says that Domitian banished some Christians, but later had somewhat of a change of heart and remanded their sentences. Now, I could just say outright that that seems to be nothing more than a retelling of the legend of the Apostle John, who wrote the book of Revelation, having been banished by Domitian to the island of Patmos, was later released, lived on until the reign of Trajan. You know what? I was thinking, why don't we give the Christian sources the benefit of the doubt for once? We know that brother of the show, Eusebius, wrote an entire history of the Christian church, giving its story from the first century all the way to the fourth century. And it's like, did I even need to do this podcast if such a history book exists and was written that early? You know, I don't know, it seems sometimes like I'm just being a mere contrarian and saying all the time that there's no reliable evidence of Christianity until the middle of the 100s when we already had this early chronicle at our disposal that shows the origins of Christianity going back well before that. And shouldn't this chronicle contain the information that we seek as to a persecution of Christians under Domitian? I mean, let's just cut the BS, go straight to that history book. And after this reading, and after we get the reliable information that we seek, that we're no doubt going to get from Eusebius here, might as well end this episode early, cancel the whole show. I mean, this is ridiculous. Who ever heard of Christianity not originating in the first century? I mean, didn't you read the Gospels? Jesus was executed by Pontius Pilate, a first century figure. So here it is, last reading ever. Quote, Domitian was in fact the second emperor who stirred up a persecution against us, although his father Vespasian undertook nothing prejudicial against us. It is said that in this persecution, the apostle and evangelist John was still alive and was condemned to dwell on the island of Patmos because of his testimony to the divine word. Indeed, the teaching of our faith glowed so brightly at that time that even writers alien to our religion mentioned in their histories the persecution and martyrdoms which took place during it. And they indeed indicated even the precise time, for they record that in the 15th year of Domitian, Flavia Domitilla, a niece of Flavius Clemens, who was one of the consuls of Rome at the time, was exiled with many to the island of Pontia for professing Christ. End quote. I take back that stuff I said about that being the last ever reading and terminating the podcast because in a moment of temporary insanity, I forgot that every Christian text, even if it's ostensibly nonfiction, is a devotional text. And the church history of Eusebius is a devotional text. You caught him saying there twice, that the reason he's bringing up this information is to show that these things occurred at that time, meaning the 90s AD, the time period that he's desperately trying to fill up at this point in his book. And what he gives us 
is a secondhand Christian legend and something from a pagan source that actually has nothing to do with Christianity as such. As we'll demonstrate today, his Christian source for the persecution by Domitian is the book of Revelation, and his pagan source is the books of Cassius Dio. Neither of them actually support a persecution by Domitian. Eusebius is trying to construct a religious narrative out of whatever scraps of info that he can conjure out of his library. His history book is a religious text. So let's investigate these sources. And first, we're gonna consume our magic mushrooms and return once again to the fever dream that is the book of Revelation. in the 180s AD explicitly says that the book of Revelation was written in the reign of Domitian and refers to the reign of Domitian. He was most likely getting that from the lost books of the Christian author Papias, whom we discussed in episode four. Now, there has been a war going on among theologians about the dating of Revelation that is even more intense than the wars depicted in the book itself. Some of them maintain that it was written in the reign of Nero, others in the reign of Domitian. Only a tiny handful have had the courage to put it outside of that date range. And from my perspective, this war between the theologians is really a war over which side can out-conservative the other. It would seem that those calling for an early date in the time of Nero would be the more conservative. But in this case, those calling for a late date are also doing so for reasons of tradition, since all the early church writers agree that John wrote the book of Revelation in the reign of Domitian. I wanna say something here that is of particular importance for this show in general. I have one of the commentaries on Revelation on my shelf here is this one by Robert L. Thomas. If John himself wrote a commentary on Revelation, it would not be so conservative as this Robert L. Thomas one. Like if John, who wrote about an army of locusts wearing Kevlar, read this book of Robert L. Thomas, he'd be like, God damn, some people believe anything. Thomas says that he believes Revelation was written in the reign of Domitian because Irenaeus said so, but here's his logic, quote, if Irenaeus had been wrong, later witnesses, including Clement, Origen, Victorinus, Eusebius, and Jerome would have corrected him. Instead, they confirmed his dating. End quote. Dude, all those people didn't know any better. You want to know something incredible? In the entire history of early Christianity, the later we get in history, no new information about the origins of these texts is ever revealed by the ancient authors. They are always ultimately following what the earliest link in the chain said in this game of Hellenistic telephone. And in this case, on the date of Revelation, it all goes back to Irenaeus following Papias. All of these people that he named are following Irenaeus, many of them following him at second hand, third hand, or fourth hand. No later author writing about any aspect of early Christianity ever comes out with any unique traditions that, you know, slipped by the earliest guys like Irenaeus, Justin, Clement. 
They're always following those three and a handful of others from that early period. This is one of the main pillars of my argument that Christianity was born in the second century because there seemed to be no organic traditions outside of a firmly circumscribed and narrow channel that runs from the 160s onward. We do get embellishments. We do get obvious legends tacked onto the early narratives, like the fact that Mark was nicknamed Stubby Fingers, but in no case do we get any reliable, detailed, specific information reflecting an organic tradition that we don't otherwise get from the apostolic fathers and from the early church fathers up to the year 200. These writers that he named don't know about how the New Testament books were written. They're not in a position to correct Irenaeus, who himself didn't know the origins of the New Testament books, their true origins. And think about that. The Christian church of that time is not just these few writers. It's supposed to be a worldwide institution. It's got at least hundreds or thousands of real, living, breathing people participating in the worship in every major city at this time and scattered throughout the provinces. No one in those churches apparently was in a position to come forward and give us anything beyond the strikingly sparse information that we get from the early fathers who are themselves clearly engaging in guesswork. You know, like Luke was picked as the name for the author of that gospel because it was written by the same guy who wrote Acts as the prologue to Acts says, and Acts ends with Paul under house arrest. So that suggests that both Acts and the gospel were written by a companion of Paul. And what do we see Paul saying in 2 Timothy? But the line, only Luke is with me. So logically, in their mind, the gospel had to be written by this Luke, whoever he is, and this is how all the New Testament books got their names. And Irenaeus himself was doing guesswork by dating Revelation in the reign of Domitian. You know, he or his source, probably Papias, like I said, the reason that Irenaeus would put Revelation in the 90s was because, as I explained in episode one, there was an ancient tradition that said that John, who was a companion of Jesus, had lived all the way to the time of Trajan. And that legend was first pushed by Irenaeus and Papias. The reason that that John the Bicentennial Man legend was created was, again, because Christianity originated later than supposed, yet its fables all speak of a ministry of Jesus and his disciples as occurring way back in the 30s. Irenaeus and those clerics of his time needed to bridge the gap between Jesus' time and their time, and they did that by saying that actually, Jesus's immediate follower, John, lived all the way up until almost our own time, basically, and he ordained the guy who ordained me. It's obvious fiction. And in the legend, John died a peaceful and natural death because that's what the end of the Gospel of John implies. It implies that he died of old age. Now, of course, Irenaeus and many others believed that the same John as wrote the Gospel of John also wrote the book of Revelation. And in the book of Revelation, John says that he's been banished to an island, with the clear implication being that it was part of some persecution. Now, in the mind of Irenaeus and all who developed the John legend, Trajan could not have put him there because they knew that John would end up dying peacefully under Trajan. So it's kind of a logic problem. If Trajan was evil enough to banish John to the island and then what, he decided to release him later, doesn't make any sense. And in the minds of these guys, he couldn't have been banished there by the Emperor Nerva because Nerva didn't rule for very long and he was well known as just kind of a sweet old man, you know, like the old man who headed up OCP in Robocop. So that leaves Domitian. And that's how Irenaeus came up with the date of the book of Revelation. Now, 
even a stop clock is right twice a day. Because my theory on this telebroadcast is that Revelation was originally a Jewish text finalized in the reign of Domitian using traditional material from the time of Nero. Revelation is a Jewish apocalypse in the spirit of writings of the time like books four and five of the Jewish Sibyllines. In fact, the book of Revelation is intertextual with the Sibylline oracles because like Revelation, that book talks about Nero coming back from the dead and invading with the Parthians. Like Revelation, it talks about the end of the world, complete with a star falling to earth. Like Revelation, they mystically refer to Rome as Babylon. And the book of Revelation does contain what appears to be a key to dating it, which is the list of emperors that's given in Revelation 17. But as I said in episode six, we try to avoid dating apocalyptic text using these kinds of things because more often than not, the author is just playing around with tropes. Suffice it to say that the book of Revelation presupposes the destruction of Jerusalem. In fact, that seems to be the very occasion for writing. So it can't be put that early. And it seems to be most similar to writings from the 90s AD or even the early second century that are obsessed with the Nero reborn legend or what we can call Nero reloaded, where he rises from the dead and comes out of the East with the Parthians and makes war against the saints. And I'm talking there about not only other Jewish apocalypses, but also things like the Ascension of Isaiah and even the book of Elkasai. And for what it's worth, in real history, in 88 AD, a false Nero appeared and took refuge with the Parthians in the East. There are some other possible allusions to the rule of Domitian in Revelation, such as we can read in the Anchor Commentary. Like, for example, the third horseman of the apocalypse says something evocative of food shortages when he says, see that you don't harm the oil and the wine. And some commentators think that that may refer to Domitian's edict of 92 AD that cut down on the amount of farmland that could be used for vineyards. And that was supposedly a way to increase the amount of grain that could be grown. This was part of the Roman Empire's bull in a china shop approach to economic policy. And there are other things like that, but nothing definite. Again, we're working here with apocalyptic tropes, so we have to be cautious. But as I said, we do have some indications that this was written at the end of the first century already. And then when we look even more closely at Revelation, we see indications that the author is trying to backdate. He seems to be trying to set himself in the time of Vespasian and looking ahead to the reign of Domitian. It's very clumsy, and that's much more of a tell than any of the confusing lists and other time cues that he tries to give. In other words, the list of emperors in Revelation 17 is not so much a clue in itself as is the fact that somebody clearly messed with it, and they corrected it to account for an emperor who was appearing to reign for a longer time than they'd expected, and Domitian fits that bill. So we can place the finalized Jewish version of this book at the time of Domitian, and the author is playing with this idea that Domitian himself is the reanimated Nero. Now, in the Revelation series, we'll be discussing the analysis of Revelation that was done by Kim Mark Lewis, who actually says that it was written in the reign of Domitian, but the author had banked on the end times occurring during his reign. So when Domitian died in 96 AD, the author did like a hasty punch up and just rushed the book out to print because Domitian dying essentially torched his entire concept. Now, as I said, Irenaeus appeared to be correct in dating the book of Revelation to this time period, but that was essentially dumb luck. That's when the Jewish version was released. As I said last time, the Christians got their hands on the book about a generation later, and they added the letters to the beginning. Most likely it was recopied first. It looks like what happened was 
they came across this Jewish text, of which there were probably like 50 billion written in this style at the time. And some cleric said, you know, hey, let's do this same thing, but make it about Jesus. And someone wrote it out in his own barbarous style and added the things he needed to add. By the way, on those Christian editions, Jesus in the book of Revelation is portrayed as holding seven stars. And that's also sometimes taken as a reference to Domitian because there's a coin that we have which depicts his young son who died when he was still a baby. And on the coin, he's kind of frolicking in the heavens, playing with seven stars. So Jesus holding the seven stars is seen as a reference to the court symbolism of Domitian. Well, unless the author meant to compare the son of man to Domitian's baby, I would rather think that the stars symbolize the seven planets that the ancients knew about. That is the planets all the way up to Saturn plus the sun and the moon. Or, in fact, they're just meant to represent the seven Asian churches, as the writer, in fact, says. Now, what did Domitian do that was so bad? Why is he seen as a sort of arch nemesis here? Well, the book of Revelation is clearly an invective against the imperial cult, that of emperor worship. And it's been pointed out by many that Domitian seems to have been the first to encourage the people of the empire to worship him while he was still living. That is, in contrast to his predecessors where they were deified after death. And this is a matter of very heavy dispute because not everyone agrees with it. There's no explicit evidence to the effect that Domitian came out one day and said like, hey folks, as of Saturday, which I'm now renaming Domitian Day, you have to now start worshiping me as a god. What we do find in the sources is that Domitian was clearly very interested in the idea and he seems to have been playing coy with it. Like, I'm not not saying that I want to be worshiped as a god. He's addressed in documents as master and lord, master and God. He said that when he remarried his wife, he was bringing her back to the divine couch. Dio Chrysostom says that Domitian was called by all Greeks and barbarians, both master and God. Quintilian says that he calls to his aid all the gods and himself before all of them, referring to Domitian, and then he explicitly calls Domitian a deity. And Suetonius point blank says that Domitian deified himself it's been a point of pride for many secular historians to tear down this idea that Domitian was worshipped as a god while he was still alive. But I mean, I think there's more than enough incidental evidence to suggest that he was. And needless to say, such an idea would not go over well with Jews with whom he had strained relations to begin with, as we'll talk about. But at the end of the day, Revelation, even if it is referring to Domitian in some oblique way, is primarily a Jewish apocalyptic text that looks forward to God's vengeance in the wake of the destruction of Jerusalem and the outrage of the personal cult of the emperors in general. The Christian letters at the beginning come from the period 130 to 140, possibly even later, because they presuppose not only Paul's letters, but a published compilation of said letters. Now, in that same section as the letters is where we find the mention of John being exiled to the island of Patmos, and that could either have been an artifact from the Jewish version of the text or something added by the Christian redactor. In either case, it's a fiction designed to anchor the text. And we see it in every other similar prophetic work, including the ones written in the names of Ezekiel and Jeremiah. And to paraphrase Robert M. Price, it's not like we have a YouTube video showing John on the island of Patmos. We have a book in his name saying he was on the island of Patmos. The main difference between Revelation and other Jewish apocalypses is that the writer, instead of writing in the name of a famous prophet, appears to be writing in the name of some nobody. 
But if in fact this mention of John is an artifact from the Jewish version of the book, it could be that the pseudonymous author intended to be writing in the name of John the Baptist. By the way, Tertullian is not satisfied with John just being banished to Patmos. He says that John was plunged into boiling oil at Rome and suffered nothing from it, and only then was he banished there. It sounds like he's referencing the book Dark Saber from the Star Wars Expanded Universe. Later writers like Origen know that John was exiled to Patmos. Of course, they know this because that's what the book of Revelation says. Clement of Alexandria gives us an amazing story of John after he returns from exile. It's where he takes a youth under his wing and then leaves to go on other adventures. And then he comes back and finds that the boy has joined a gang of robbers. And so he rides all night to go to the robber's camp and kind of shames the boy and takes him back into the fold. It sounds suspiciously like a Christian rewrite of some popular story of the time. For some reason, whenever I read the story, I like to imagine it as taking place in the universe of Horizon Zero Dawn, but it's a shameless legend. All this to say, we can find no specific information about a persecution of Christians by Domitian in the book of Revelation. So uh, strike it from the record. And while we're at it, strike Tertullian and Melito from the record again. The excerpt of Melito talking about a persecution by Domitian was forged by Eusebius. And as we've seen, Tertullian knows just as much about persecution of Christians by Domitian as by Nero, which is to say almost nothing. And again, I remind you that Nero and Domitian were seen even by the contemporary Romans as bad emperors, and both of them were damned by the Senate after their deaths. Therefore, if your worldview assumes that the Roman Empire has a vendetta against Christians, it is most safe to ascribe these negative actions to the emperors whom even the Romans would agree were bad, especially if you're doing apologetics. Now, I've been talking recently with some who have made the point that these so-called bad emperors are considered bad largely because that was the opinion of them that was held by the upper classes, whereas the lower classes among the Romans loved Nero and Domitian. Now, if that is the case, and it very well could be, Think of the implications of that when you reread these testimonies by Tertullian and others that only the bad emperors persecuted Christians. That means that these Christian writers are even more removed from day-to-day, real-life experience than we already suspected, because it means that they're getting even their information about Roman history and Roman culture from books like that of Suetonius and Tacitus and others, and not like actual lived experience, not organic tradition, that was passed on in the church over the years. Back after this. Before the destruction of the temple, all Jews were expected to pay a tax for its upkeep, the so-called didrachma. That's the tax that Peter and Jesus robbed the fish in order to be able to pay, with no concern whatsoever by them that that fish would now be unable to pay the tax. After the temple's destruction, the didrachma was replaced by a new tax, payable to the Romans, two denarii per person per year to be paid toward the upkeep of the Roman temple of Jupiter Capitolinus. 
It was more or less a penalty imposed in the wake of the first Jewish war, the Fiscus Judaicus, the Jewish tax. Suetonius says in his biography of Domitian, quote, the tax on the Jews was levied with the utmost rigor, and people were prosecuted who lived as Jews without publicly acknowledging it, as well as those who concealed their origin and didn't pay the tribute levied on their people, end quote. The context of this sentence is a passage where he's going over some of the general policies of Domitian. That's his style. He does the policy section. In the Loeb Classical Library edition, there's a footnote after this sentence. I eagerly followed it to the bottom of the page, hoping to learn more about the Fiscus Judaicus. And this is what I read in that footnote. Quote, These were doubtless Christians whom the Romans commonly confounded with the Jews. End quote. Now I'm going to read the definition of doubtless from the dictionary. Quote, Adverb, used to indicate the speaker's belief that a statement is certain to be true given what is known about the situation. I guess maybe doubtless had a different definition back when they put out the Loeb commentary. By the way, if you notice, they said there that the Romans commonly confounded Christians with Jews. I guess Pliny the Younger is exempt from that trend for some reason. I mean, he certainly doesn't confound Christians with Jews at all, like not even in the slightest. Much more on that next time, but this is the problem. Eusebius says that there was a persecution by Domitian. Other writers whom he also cites, Tertullian, Melito, also say that. Revelation appears to them to also indicate that. As we've shown, however, they're basing it on nothing. So what the theologians now have to do is pour over every single sentence of the biography of Domitian to find something, anything, that could be used to support a persecution by him. It's grasping at straws, and we see it here with this tax story. Now, I know a man who, whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know, only God knows, has some experience with tax law and Suetonius here is describing the type of thing that we have seen in every nation, in every era, when it comes to enforcing a tax. People will do the utmost to take advantage of any ambiguity in the law to get out of paying a tax. If it says that a home must be taxed, but a mobile home will not be taxed, they will paint trompe loy wheels on their house to try to get it to pass as a mobile home. And here, the tax was against Jews, and the thing is, there was no hard and fast way to define a Jew, especially in that era. And if you were a proselyte, for example, the argument could be made by you if you were trying to get out of a tax that you were simply dabbling with Judaism, just kind of checking it out, so to speak, and not a 100% adherent to the Jewish faith. Now, the idea here was that the position of Domitian's administration was to define Judaism in terms of a lifestyle. And what they most likely meant when you read the Roman poets and historians was things like observing the Sabbath, observing the food laws, embracing monotheism. That definition could possibly encompass Christians as well. But it's clear that what we're dealing with here, as Suetonius himself says, is that the Romans were possibly unfairly expanding the scope of this tax. And also that some Jews were, quote, concealing their origin so as to get out of paying the tax. And whether we choose to accept either of those statements, we need not automatically default to this position that this whole thing doubtless has to do with Christians. And all the more so, because if you read the portions of Paul's letters that I date to this period, like Romans chapters 9 through 11, 
it's really doubtful that a Christian or proto-Christian or Pauline Christian would be so reticent when it came to their identity. Like, I imagine that if a tax collector of Domitian knocked on the door of some Pauline Christian in Rome, he would be like, hey, we consider you to be Jewish, so fork over the tax money. They would have much more to say in response than, actually, I'm not technically a Jew. You know, they'd be like, if you didn't know, sir, not all are Israel who are descended from Israel. In fact, as it says, through Isaac, your descendants shall be named. And furthermore, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. Now the Gentiles who didn't pursue righteousness attained righteousness, and that was the righteousness that's by faith. However, Israel and the Roman tax collector would be like, all right, all right, Jesus Christ, you're not a Jew. On you go, God. I think the relationship between proto-Christianity and Judaism was much more complicated in this period to the point where if a proto-Christian was identified by the Romans as a Jew, that they wouldn't somehow have countless arguments on hand to qualify or dispute that fact, added to which nearly every early Christian writing that we possess seeks to spiritualize the Jewish practices of sacrifice and Sabbath observance, dietary laws, the very things that the Romans stereotypically associated with Jews. So I think it's a bit simplistic to just declare that this tax controversy involved Christians in some way. But in point of fact, we didn't even need to formulate an argument here because the words of Suetonius speak for themselves. He says that the emperors zealously enforced a tax law. Some people who should have been liable were claiming that they weren't liable. So enforcement action was taken against them for that reason. So strike this Suetonius passage from the record immediately. Now, just briefly, we can actually call up Pliny the Younger as a possible witness to a persecution by Domitian. The reason being that Pliny himself was a top government official during Domitian's reign. If anyone was aware of a persecution of Christians started by Domitian, it would be him. But of course, as is well known, he says he's never attended trials of Christians and doesn't know what the charge against them usually is. It goes without saying that if Domitian persecuted Christians in the time in which Pliny worked in his government, then Pliny would have worded his statement somewhat differently here. As it is, the whole idea of Pliny being ignorant about the Christians is, as I said last time in the opening reading, a literary device by which the forger can avoid saying nasty things about Christianity to the extent possible. It's sometimes said that when Pliny has the Christians offer sacrifice, that he's performing an action that was established in Domitian's time, to persecute Christians because, you know, Domitian demanded that he be worshipped as a god and Pliny is now on his own serving as governor and now he's persecuting Christians and his muscle memory is to do the same things that were done in Domitian's time. So he himself makes the Christians sacrifice to the emperor and it's like, that's not really valid because even if we play along and consider this letter to be genuine, Pliny himself is revealed as being a staunch adherent of the cult of emperor worship. In letter 8-4, he calls Trajan a divine hero. In letter 10-8, he asks him for permission to add his statue to a temple. In letter 10-59, he refers to Trajan's immortal name. So there are other explanations available than the fact that he's compelling someone to sacrifice to the emperor simply because it's some holdover tradition that he inherited from Domitian. It's also sometimes said that because the lapsed Christians in Pliny's letter, remember that it was written in 112 AD, if it's genuine, the lapsed Christians say that they left the faith 25 years before, and that would be right in the middle of Domitian's reign. It kind of makes sense that if Domitian was persecuting Christians, that 
that would inspire a bunch of wavering people to lapse. But I think that the fact that there are lapsed Christians at all in Pliny's letter is a mere literary device by the forger. Again, he needs them there because that's actually one of the main things Pliny asks about. To what extent are they liable for punishment? And you know, 25 years is really just a round number. It's just like him saying that they left the faith once upon a time. Bottom line, we can strike Pliny as a witness to any kind of persecution of Christians under Domitian. And now we get to what is usually held up as the main evidence for actions against the Christians during this time period, just like how Tacitus is the main source of evidence for the Neronian persecution. For the time of Domitian, the main evidence deployed by theologians is the execution by the emperor of two individuals called Flavius Clemens and Flavia Domitilla. These two are said by theologians to have been executed for professing Christianity. Of course, that's not what Cassius Dio and the other ancient pagan sources say, but we are told by the theologians that that was the real reason. Now, Christian apologists will be pleased to note that Cassius Dio is a pagan historian whose writings nonetheless reference Christians. It only took until the 230s AD, but you made it. So congrats, guys. I'm just kidding. The three references to Christians in the writings of Cassius Dio were all added by a Christian monk, and that's actually not in dispute for a change, because for the later books of Dio, all we have are 11th century summaries by a Byzantine monk, and among those occur all the references to Christians, and this monk self-consciously breaks into the text in a few places. Like, they're not actually interpolations per se, they're actually comments by the monk. So Cassius Dio didn't mention Christians at all, but... Keep at it, apologists. Might score a mention of Christians before the time of Julian the Apostate, if you're lucky. Cassius Dio covers the reign of Domitian, and he's in the midst of describing a particular year in which Domitian just happened to be killing the shit out of everyone around him, like he was in one of those GTA Rampage mini-games. He says, quote, In the same year, Domitian killed, along with many others, Flavius Clemens the consul, although he was a cousin, and had as his wife Flavia Domitilla, who was also a relative of the emperor's. The charge brought against them both was that of atheism, or atheotes, a charge on which many others who drifted into Jewish ways were condemned. Some of these were put to death, and the rest were at least deprived of their property. Domitilla was merely banished to Pandateria. End quote. Pandateria was an island that was often used for banishment, now, remember the quote from Eusebius earlier. He said, The teaching of our faith glowed so brightly at that time that even writers alien to our religion mentioned in their histories the persecution and martyrdoms which took place during it. And they indeed indicated even the precise time, for they record that in the 15th year of Domitian, Flavia Domitilla, a niece of Flavius Clemens, who was one of the consuls of Rome at the time, was exiled with many to the island of Pontia for professing Christ. End quote. Now, Eusebius is proud to point out that even pagan writers recorded the martyrdom of Christians in this time period. And he gives, uh, I guess you could call it a version of the Cassius Dio story, clearly based on it in some way. But make no mistake that when Eusebius says that all these pagan writers referred to Christians being killed, all he's talking about is some garbled form of this story from Cassius Dio. That's all he's talking about. He may have gotten it secondhand from a writer named Brutius. He mentions him as his source. Does not tell us who Brutius is. He might as well have said that he was getting his info from 
Brutius Beefcake, but in the original Cassius Dio story, two people were charged by Domitian with atheism, which he says was also a charge that was applied against those who drifted into Jewish ways. We already talked about that type of language in the Suetonius passage earlier. What seems most likely is that Eusebius knew full well that Christians were often charged with the crime of atheism because they didn't worship the traditional gods. So he found some version of this same story that we find in Cassius Dio and decided that because we have here an instance of people being executed for atheism, that therefore the real charge against them was that they were Christians. Now, why would Eusebius even bother to make this connection at all? The story is so flimsy, and if you choose to make it about Christians, it raises a hell of a lot more questions than it answers. Well, if you remember, his Christian sources have already told him that Domitian was a persecutor. We saw before that they were basing that primarily on legends, as well as the book of Revelation, possibly being redundant there. And it has to be pointed out how similar Eusebius is to modern theologians. He's very clever in much the same way as the velociraptor that tricked Muldoon in Jurassic Park. He's almost modern in his approach, by which I mean he knows that there had to be a persecution by Domitian, so he scours his sources and he finds this curious story about two people being executed on the charge of atheism, and then he's like, aha, this is a possible source that could back up the idea that Domitian went after Christians. So he reads Christianity into an event where it's not merited. Now, a common argument from apologists is that because Eusebius tells the story differently than Cassius Dio did, because for one thing, he says that the woman that was executed was Clement's niece and not his wife, what they claim is that Eusebius is really giving us the true unadulterated form of the story and that the real person punished for Christianity was Flavia Domitilla, the niece of Clement, as in there was somehow a second Flavia Domitilla. But it seems very clear that what happened was that when Eusebius read whatever it was that he read that told him about this, he was confused by the fact that both Flavius Clemens and his wife, Flavia Domitilla, were said to be relatives of Domitian. And Eusebius being a Christian and conscious that Christians had often also been accused of incest, he rewrote the story to make Flavia Domitilla a niece of Flavius Clemens so that there could be no suggestion that this pure Christian woman was guilty of committing incest, and maybe that's why she was exiled. Now, Suetonius kind of mentions this whole affair, and he says of Domitian, he put to death his own cousin, Flavius Clemens, suddenly and on a very slight suspicion, almost before the end of his consulship, and yet Flavius was a man of almost contemptible laziness. By the way, this Flavius Clemens character is sometimes identified by Christian apologists as being an early bishop of Rome. But based on that testimony from Suetonius, is this really the kind of guy you want to claim as Christian? Contemptibly lazy? This your guy? But Cassius Dio says nothing in connection with Christianity here, nor do the other writers like Philostratus who also talk about this event. It reminds me of what I said about the Suetonius Crestus passage in the last show. You know, call me if you can figure out whatever the fuck this has to do with Christianity. It was made to have something to do with Christianity by Eusebius and by modern apologists based solely on wishful thinking. The whole thing is a mess. But bottom line, the exile of Domitilla doesn't support the persecution of Christians by Domitian unless you're taking Eusebius strictly at his word. And if you do, 
you'll find yourself in the company of one of the theologians I was reading who said, quote, Eusebius has proved himself a reliable, a quite intelligent, and a by no means reckless reporter. Jesus. At the time of this episode, Jeff Bezos and his trusty crew have blasted off into space, and I expect at some point they'll find this theologian somewhere up there teaching the star child about the Domitian persecution. At best, Clemens and Domitilla may have been punished under suspicion of being Jews, even though Suetonius indicates that Clemens was killed for political reasons. There's a lot more to the story. We'll cover it at greater length someday, but the purpose here is to find any precedent for the persecution of Christians that could support the belief by Pliny and Trajan that Christianity was illegal on its face in their time. And the writings of Cassius Dio and whatever the monsoon of nonsense that Eusebius concocted out of them lends no support to this, so we may duly strike them from the record. Now, there's another story about Domitian that has come down to us from a lost book by the Christian author Hegesippus from the late 2nd century AD. He says that the grandsons of Jesus' brother Jude were hauled before Domitian for the crime of belonging to the royal lineage of David. He says that Domitian was rounding up all the descendants of David because he dreaded the advent of Christ as Herod had. We are then told, however, that he let these descendants of Jesus' brother go free because he saw that they were just a couple of poor, humble dirt farmers. And after he does this, Domitian says, take a shot, that the persecution of the Christian church should be ended. Then the story says that these fellows became leaders of the churches and they lived until the reign of Trajan. This is an obvious etiological myth created in the late second century by a group of Jewish Christians who seem to be appropriating the John legend and applying it to their own legendary heroes. Notice how, like John, these members of Jesus' family are said to have been rounded up in the reign of Domitian. Like John, these men are said to have then gone on to be church leaders. Like John, these men are then said to have lived until the time of Trajan. It's the same template as the John legend, but there's a special emphasis here on Jesus' family being entitled to primacy in the early church, a view that was not shared by the other sects, and pointedly, it was not shared by what I call mainstream Christianity. Now, the creator of this legend was actually much smarter than the creators of the John legend, because whereas for the John legend to make sense, John would have to be like 255 years old if he lived in the reign of Trajan. Here, the legend is much more reasonable in that the grandsons of Jesus' brother are given the same career path on the same timeline as John, which makes much more sense given their younger age. It's much more sensible for these people who were probably born in 60 or 70 AD to become bishops in the reign of Trajan. But this whole story is at its core a polemic. Whether the compiler Hegesippus understood it to be a polemic is an open question, but from the pseudo-Clementine writings and other books, we know about all the issues that the more Jewish-leaning Christians had with all the other sects, and this and other legends we find in Hegesippus, including more lore about James, for example, fit right in with that. Hegesippus will get his own episode, but this fine tale, which is really just a rewrite of the John of Patmos legend, I think we can safely strike it from the record as evidence for a Domitian persecution. It certainly doesn't provide any strong support for one. Last time we mentioned the Christian letter called First Clement, the Christian wonder-chosen episode about humility. 
It's written in the name of the Roman church to the Corinthian church with the writer of the letter very careful not to mention his own name anywhere in the letter, which is, I think, fairly ominous when you're dealing with questions of authenticity. But the name Clement ends up being written in the superscription in the manuscripts. And very early on, this letter is ascribed to Clement, who is said in the tradition to be one of the first bishops of Rome. The name Clement, by the way, was taken from another Christian book, The Shepherd of Hermas, which is my own favorite text. But in that, it was said that a man named Clement had authority to write to foreign churches. And I think that this letter was originally released anonymously, but the early Christian clerics did some detective work, just like with the New Testament books, and hit upon the name Clement for the author. It's called First Clement because there is also a Second Clement, which is a written sermon. And the reason that that book was attributed to Clement was because it contains a weird, arcane, apocryphal quote that happens to also be found in First Clement as well, but nowhere else outside of these two books. And this has been my masterclass as to how the early Christian texts got their names. Anyway, First Clement is held up as proof of a persecution under Domitian because in the first sentence it says, quote, Beloved, due to the sudden and successive events and circumstances which have come upon us, we found that we've been remiss in answering the matters that you've asked about, especially that shameful and unholy sedition among you. End quote. This is taken to be an allusion to Domitian's persecution of the Christian church in Rome. But what the author said here is far too meager to extrapolate the idea that there was a big persecution and that that was the reason they hadn't written to the Corinthians yet. Like he could be referring to a norovirus outbreak in their kid's daycare. Like they all use the same daycare and they all get infected and then the parents get infected. And then it's like, beloved, due to the sudden and successive calamities of all of us shitting our brains out for the past three weeks, we have not been able to respond to your letter about the sedition in Corinth. It's just not enough information. And if I made the same kind of wild extrapolation with hardly anything in the text to support it, Christian apologists would be lining up around the block to call me a buster, and they know that as well. Now, later in the letter, he says that Peter and Paul were executed and a bunch of other Christians died, and we now find ourselves in the same arena. And that's taken to mean that those persecutions having supposedly happened under Nero, the author is now saying that he and his congregation are facing the same things. And it's like, Exhorting your recipient to steadfastness in the face of external adversity is a staple of Christian writings. It's found throughout the New Testament, all throughout the Paul's letters, First Peter, letter to the Hebrews. It's a trope, essentially. And even if we must take this to refer to an actual persecution of Christians going on at the time, there's nothing to specifically date it to the reign of Domitian. On the contrary, the letter is placed in the reign of Domitian by theologians because of this reference, because they quote-unquote know that Domitian persecuted Christians. In other words, one fictional event is being used to date another fictional event. And in fact, if you think about it, nothing's stopping us from just creating a persecution by some other emperor using this statement of First Clement alone as a source. Why not say that it was written during the reign of Vespasian? I'm going to go around starting tomorrow saying Vespasian persecuted the Christians and people will say, oh, really? How do you know that? And I'll say, well, in First Clement, he discussed a persecution by Nero. And then he says, now we're encountering similar problems. I mean, can you prove that he's not referring to a persecution by Vespasian? There'd be just as much support for that as saying that First Clement supports a persecution of Christians by Domitian that is not even obliquely hinted at in the text. Plus, by my reckoning, 
this text is dated 70 years too early. So strike it from the record. In summary, to quote the theologian L.H. Canfield, once Tertullian stated that Domitian persecuted Christians, the tradition became perpetuated and the church fathers repeated the story over and over again and added details. A careful study of the sources on the period of Domitian reveals at once the slender foundation upon which is built the tradition of the second persecution of the church. End quote. This episode could simply have consisted of those two sentences alone and would have been just as valid, just as true. But this is born in the second century and we confront our opponents carefully and in succession, just like Bart Simpson hopping over the heads of Jebediah Springfield in the Bart's Nightmare video game. And by the way, after all this, after all the Jewish, Christian, and pagan sources that we've investigated and found no evidence of a Domitian persecution, need I even state that there is no support for such a thing in any inscriptions, grave sites, coins, emails, shopping lists, or Roman laws, of which we have massive and copious compilations. Today, we've examined the second of two likely candidates for a persecution of Christians before Pliny, the reign of Domitian. As with the reign of Nero last time, we found that Domitian's persecution of the Christians, which is sworn to by the church fathers with ironclad certainty, is just another one of those questionable, nebulous myths. And in exposing it, we've removed yet another Jenga piece that was supporting the legitimacy of the Pliny letter because remember, Christianity had to have been proscribed, had to have been persecuted prior to Pliny for this letter to make any sense. The Pliny letter was forged in the 180s AD, possibly the 190s, by Christian clerics as a way to try to limit their exposure in the Roman legal actions against Christians in their time and try to influence the Roman legal discourse on persecution. They were influenced by the persecution narratives in the writings of Justin Martyr, Tatian, and Athenagoras. We've investigated Christian and pagan sources to look for those precedents for the elements of persecution that are discussed by Pliny and Trajan and have come up with nothing to support them. We continue our Pliny series and we'll tie up the close reading in the next few episodes, always keeping in mind that it's not impossible to doubt the authenticity of this letter. And in the name of St. Carlo, we declare the persecution of Christians by Domitian to be a late and spurious legend with troubling implications for the genuineness of Pliny's letter to Trajan about the Christians. Thank you for listening. This criticism is ended. Go in peace. What other stories of mythology do you think of as historical reality? Mm-hmm.